All right. You know, Caroline, I thought, did a really lovely job last week opening our new sermon series on prayer, talking about prayer as communion with God, a little bit about the science of meditation and the calming of our minds. Now, I know that we come from various backgrounds here at Blue Ocean. Like some of you, I come from a faith stream where we didn't use a whole lot of formal prayers. You know, but maybe if you grew up Catholic or Lutheran or even Jewish, you might have a few more prayers that you have that maybe you had memorized or were things that you used in group settings. But for me, I basically had the Lord's Prayer growing up. And that really weird one, as I lay me down to sleep, I pray my, I mean, I don't think my parents taught me that one, right? But those are maybe the two that I had. And so for me, prayer was a little bit more like train of thought or silence, which is lovely. Um, but if you just have that, like I did growing up, it's kind of like just having like one or two different kinds of pie available to you to eat when there's actually like this whole smorgasbord of desserts. And it turns out I love ice cream too, right? So there's all of this different horizon of prayer. And so over the years, I learned to expand that repertoire like many of you have. But I've come to appreciate some of these more formal prayers that have been passed down by people who have also found them useful. And so we're going to be talking about a few particular ones over the coming weeks so that we can just have a few little extra tools in our tool belt that we can pull out. So I would just suggest that if you're a person who maybe you didn't grow up with a lot of like pre-written prayers or prayers that you have memorized that you say that are part of your spirituality, it might just be fun to experiment with some of those. Um, maybe even just like spend the week and whatever prayer we're doing, add it to a pre-established routine. Maybe just read it when you have your coffee in the morning. Or if you're at work and you're just like, I just need to like recenter my brain after this meeting. And just kind of pull it out and see if that's helpful at all. The prayer that I want to start us out with this week for that is one that we say every week at church, and that's the Sarum prayer. So, you know, that God be in my head and in my understanding, in my eyes. And what I want to do this morning is just give it a little bit of context so that we understand why we use it in our services. And I think it can also um, just help us appreciate a little bit of like what's going on in the larger sort of Western Christian ether right now. So that Sarum prayer is over a thousand years old. But even before that, there were prayers that were a lot like it that were floating around during the Dark Ages. And so if you look on the sheet that I passed out, there's one from 7th century Ireland. And if you use those meditation podcasts that I put out in COVID that Ken and I and some of the staff, you might recognize it because this is one that I used. It's called the Lorica of St. Fury. May the guiding hands of God be on my shoulders. May the presence of the Holy Spirit be on my head. May the sign of the cross be on my forehead. May the voice of the Holy Spirit be in my ears. May the smell of the Holy Spirit be in my nose. I always want to do it in like an Irish accent. I may the company of the heavens be in my eyes. <laughs> I won't, sorry. May the work of the church of God be in my hands. May the serving of God and my neighbor be in my feet. May God make my heart his home, and may I belong to God. Amen. So you'll notice this one's a little bit more fleshed out than the version that we have. I actually had a congregant a few weeks back told me that when they use it, they add a couple of things. God be in my ears and in my listening. God be in my hands and in my doing. And I think that's a really lovely way to interact with these prayers. Something I notice from this is that there's some extra lines like the voice of the Spirit in my ear the smell in my nose, God in my heart, right? And so with this prayer, we're locating God in our bodies, right? There's this present nearness to God. It's not like praying to God somewhere out there in the heavenlies, but it's God in here. 
And I would call the prayer sensual because prayers like this evoke our senses, right? What does the Holy Spirit smell like? What does the Spirit taste like? All right, you might have heard of maybe Catholic churches or Eastern Orthodox churches. Sometimes we call them smells and bells churches. Have you heard that term? I mean, they usually kind of like it, I think. I think it's completely um, lovely. And we call them that because of the incense that's used in the services and the attention to the different senses with bells and maybe choral music. Uh, the art and the architecture that sort of draws your eyes up and it's this attention to worshiping with our whole bodies. Now, we've been in this time where we've been saying, you know, like sacred space doesn't just take place in churches or houses of faith, temples, synagogues, but it's everywhere, and that's lovely. But there is also something lovely to having this idea of like engaging all of our body. I actually did think about introducing incense when we started Blue Ocean, but not incense like in the Catholic church, but I've got these little um, like pine tree and cedar and like very woodsy ones. And I was like, I wonder if that would like just help us connect to the creation and nature in this time where climate change is, you know, happening very quickly and we could use that. The reason I didn't do it is because many of us are so sensitive to smells, right? And that includes me. I can do the wood things, but I know a lot of people can't. But it's something that you might try if you've never done that in your own prayer or meditation time is maybe just light a little bit of incense. So the Sarum prayer is sort of in this vein, and it comes to us from an anonymous writer. The earliest dating is of, the, of the form that we say is from the 11th century. Now, if you're like, gosh, the 11th century, that just sounds like a long time ago. I have this sort of timeline in my mind, like the history background part of me. So I just want to remember together that the 11th century was like 500 years before Protestantism even existed, right? So this prayer is, it comes to us from the Catholic tradition, and it was a variation on a Catholic mass called the Sarum Rite, and it was a variation that was used mostly in England and in northern France, and it was developed at the Salisbury Cathedral. So if you're like, I don't know where Salisbury is, anybody been to Stonehenge? One. Couple, a couple of you? I tried to go to Stonehenge. Oh, okay, Diane, Diane's like, I did, I did. I really wanted to go. I was backpacking Europe with my friend Diana right after college, and it was the first place. We went to London, and we were like, we just want to go to Stonehenge before we go to Amsterdam, you know, like the things that you do when you're like 22. Stonehenge, Amsterdam. Um, and so we stayed the night in Salisbury, and because of the time lag, we just completely overslept, and our train was coming, so the bed and breakfast lady came down, and you know, knocked, she's like, you guys are just going to miss your train, so I went to Salisbury and never saw Stonehenge. But there is a little miniature version in western um, Michigan. Somebody like, made it in their front lawn. I did see that. I think that's in like, that weird Michigan book. I highly recommend it. It's really odd. You just drive up into their circular driveway, and you're like, there's Stonehenge, but it's that big. Anyway, this comes to us from near Stonehenge. <laughs> the line that has always stood out for me in this prayer is, God be in my heart and in my thinking. Right? Because we don't tend to, here in 21st century America, we don't tend to ascribe the job of thinking to our hearts. And that's a concept that comes to us from a different time. When it was believed that the heart controlled our thoughts, our sensations, maybe our body movements. That was called cardiocentrism. So some of the Greeks ascribed to it, like Aristotle, I actually think we see some of this worldview peek out a little bit in Paul's writing in Ephesians. So I included this bit from Ephesians 1. I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious creator, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know them better. I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened 
in order that you might know the hope to which they've called you the riches, the riches of their glorious inheritance. Right? So wisdom and revelation and hope are being made known to our hearts through its eyes. Right? And so the wisdom center is located here. And it kind of reminds me, in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, there's, um, there's a way of meditating where you think about descending with your mind into your heart, usually saying the Jesus prayer. And it's this idea of like, this is where I think, this is where wisdom and revelation come. So the sarum rite that contained the sarum prayer, it was used for a few hundred years. But then in the 14, 1500s, Western Christianity underwent a really major shift that we call the Reformation, beginning of Protestantism, kind of followed by the Enlightenment. So during the Reformation, a few things shifted in how Protestants started to think about faith. And at the risk of sounding reductive of such a large thing, I just want to name a couple of those big changes. The first thing that happened was that they emphasized the concept of grace. Right? This idea that everybody is accepted by God. We don't have to earn God's favor. There's nothing we can do. We are just accepted. And even if the Reformers didn't carry that idea to its fullest, I still think that's a really beautiful concept that we are still trying to realize. Protestants also challenged the authority of the church. Right, so the Catholic Church located the authority in the Pope and in the magisterium. Right? And it's just this idea of like who gets to decide? Who's like the final say on what's acceptable theology and practice? And so that started to shift. The reformers said, you know, maybe the Pope is actually just a fallible human being. And at the time, there were three men who were claiming to be Pope, and there was a whole lot of corruption. Right? So they were looking at it, and they're like, well, if the Pope is just a human... And we can't even decide who the real pope is anyway. Maybe we need to have something else steer our religious ship. And so they theorized then that the Bible might serve that purpose because they thought, well, the scripture's really clear, right? And if people can just read it for themselves, they'll just naturally come to the same conclusions about what it says. And so in this quest to understand the Bible, the reformers they drew from the Enlightenment thinkers. And so there was this effort to find a methodical, rational, coherent approach to Scripture. And so we had the rise of something called systematic theology. I'm not a big fan. It's still taught in most uh, seminaries. 500 years later, we can see that this theory about the Bible, about it being clear and somewhat uniform, is woefully inadequate. There are more than 35,000 Protestant denominations because people can't decide on a consistent interpretation. It turned out, once people could read it with the help with system, or systematic theologies, we did not come to the same conclusions about what it said. So now we're at a place in history where some Christians have said, you know, maybe the Bible isn't meant to be read by that, like that. And it's not just that this is happening through all of the different Protestant um, traditions in different parts of it. Maybe it's just not meant to be read like that. Our Jewish friends don't read it that way. Maybe the way we've been reading it's actually anti-Jewish, right? Hindsight 2020. But we're in the middle of what's being called this new reformation as we try and figure out what all of this means. I could go down a cul-de-sac with all of that. I don't mean to get too deep in the woods, but what I want us to understand here is that there was a certain mindset taking place that was unfolding over centuries where the Protestant religion sought to understand faith in this logical, surgical way, feelings became a little suspect, right? And there are a few exceptions. I can always think of the exceptions. But speaking in a very broad generality, the sensuality of faith rituals and prayers were curbed in a lot of Protestant spaces. And it was in that, or in that atmosphere of Reformation thinking and of the Enlightenment um, and people studying human anatomy, people started to imagine that their thinking was done in their heads, and not in their hearts. 
Right, so fairly on in the Reformation, this was around the time Martin Luther supposedly nailed his 92 theses to the Wittenberg door. Um, probably didn't actually nail them, but it's at this time a version of the Sarum Prayer appeared in the Sarum Primer of 1514, and it had already started showing some of these signs of the influence of the Reformation. So if you look, I've got that written down. God be in my head and in my understanding. God be in my eyes and in my looking. God be in my mouth and in my speaking. God be in my heart and in my loving. And then there's this kind of beautiful extra bits. May your mercy fall upon us. May your healing grow within us. May your beauty overwhelm us so that we might know your grace. God be in my head and in my understanding here on this land, here on this acre of God's love, abiding in God's love. Right, so God is still located in the body at this time. There are still some things that are, I would say, maybe are a little more sensual, this idea of like beauty overwhelming us. We've got grace being sought, but hearts are now for loving and not thinking. Very soon after this, just maybe three or four decades, the Sarum prayer and the Sarum rite that it was part of just disappeared. And it went out of use for hundreds of years because that version of the Mass was primarily used in England, and England was very fast becoming Protestant. Henry VIII and Mary and then Elizabeth, there was all this stuff, right? So after a few hundred years then of the reformers experimenting with this idea that the Bible was clear and easily understood, the first really major crack started to appear in that theory. And I would say the dismantling of slavery in England and then later the U.S. was like the first really big fissure that started to show because it was displaying that people who were on, quote-unquote, both sides of an issue could find biblical backing for their arguments using systematic theology. Right? I mean, if you want to find a biblical backing for slavery, you can do that. And they did. And so what to make of that if the Bible is clear? Then some dude, Charles Darwin, wrote a book that challenged a whole lot of ideas about what Protestants thought it meant to be human and about the creation story. And then all those pesky women started wanting to be pastors. First ones were ordained in the late 1800s, right? And so you started having this, like, these big fights where people were using the Bible. I think the idea of queer inclusion is like the straw that's starting to, like, break the camel's back in terms of challenging how Scripture is to be read. It's why it's being resisted so fervently in many of these circles, because slavery, science, women's equality, and now LGBTQ plus equality, there's like only so many major issues where we can pretend that the Bible is clear before that theory just kind of completely dissolves. And that's scary for a lot of people. Well, strange things started to happen, right? These fissures started to show. And then around the turn of the last century, in 1906, um, a weird thing happened on Azusa Street in Los Angeles. And the Pentecostal movement was born. That movement was followed by similar ones in Korea and China and Wales. And I would say that today, a lot of the Pentecostal movement has been co-opted by fundamentalists. But the, the argument that I made in the book that Ken and I wrote some years back is that I think that the genesis of it was kind of beautiful. Um, I read it as this like gut-level fighting back against these restrictions of the Reformation. Right? At Azusa Street, Women were leading the church, and they were preaching, and they were teaching, and they were pastors. Black and brown and white people were worshiping together in the same space, which was almost unheard of at that time. A black man, William Seymour, was the earliest leader of the Azusa movement. The early uh, Pentecostals were pacifists. They were not justifiers of war. The sensuality of worship, right, this idea of the divine coming and residing in our bodies returned. 
right? They started to talk about the infilling of the Holy Spirit, right? So I think, think about Pentecostal movement however you will. Some of us, including me, have been in really spiritually abusive spaces where Pentecostal, like, emoting has been used to manipulate, and it's been really gross. All oh, the stories I could tell you if you want at the picnic. But I would think that the heart of what was happening at Azusa before that was co-opted by the evangelical fundamentalist movements, I think it held a little bit of a seed of a new way for the church to exist with heart and mind together informing each other. Right, so I would suggest that the thing that the reformers lost sight of is that there are other ways of knowing. Right, that there are ways that still existed in forms of Catholicism, in the eastern parts of the church, in pockets of the Protestant church, ways of knowing that had been discounted, intuition, feelings, things that had been feminized in order to dismiss them as like irrational. There are ways of knowing that our indigenous friends highlight as being central to their ways about thinking and being in the world. This idea that empathy and compassion and kindness are central guides to our paths to understanding. And so the reformers, I think rightly were suspect of people who just followed passions and emotions, and they should have been. You know, I think when passions are divorced from reason and science, dangerous things can happen. <coughs> Maga. But uh, similarly, when reason is divorced from feelings and intuitions, also dangerous things can happen. And I think we're currently in this sort of adjustment period where we're trying to reclaim this idea that love your neighbor as yourself has to be the underlying ethical framework. We have to start with love, and then our thinking can flow out from that starting point, right? The idea is that the wisdom center is here. May the eyes of our hearts be enlightened, as Paul wrote. And so I think understanding that larger historical context, it might not be surprising to us then that the Sarum prayer started to pop its head back out of the sand in the late, uh, late 1800s, right, just before Azusa Street, right? This was sort of fermenting or bubbling in different parts of the church. And then this prayer made its full comeback through the 1900s, and it was back in its old form. God be in my heart and in my thinking. And I think it was scratching an itch. It was scratching this itch for God to be near, for the divine to help us think with our hearts again. This prayer is used um, through quite a bit of the Episcopal Church, I haven't actually heard it used over here at St. Clair, but I know Phyllis Tickle talked about how she would say it every week in her Episcopal church. She was a lifelong Episcopalian. And she told me that there were um, hand symbols attached to that, which I can tell you about, but I haven't been able to find in any sort of, like any other books or texts. But she would do this thing with her thumb. God be in my head and in my understanding. God be in my eyes and in my looking. God be in my mouth and in my speaking. God be in my heart and in my thinking, and then she'd go down here, like in the solar plexus, God be at my end and at my departing. So if you ever see somebody do that, that apparently is a thing. And then she included that prayer when she read some of the Book of Common Prayers to make it more accessible for the wider church and the divine hours. She was a real fan of this prayer because she thought it was really helpful for people of our time. right? And also that God be at my end and at my departing in a culture where we don't talk about death and grief and where that can just be normalized, and it can be something that can be said as we enter into our own times like of, of dying and grief when we enter that space. So composers like John Rutter put it to music. David, our worship director, put it to music, and he gave it as a gift to Ken, and so we are going to listen to that in our meditation time. Um, I just wanted to say that's, that's the main reason we've incorporated it into our service when we planted this church. I find that simple, 
easy to remember, a helpful prayer. It pops into my head at different times of life. And I think it's a good reminder to us um, to use a really churchy word, like discipleship is not a word that I use that often. But I think of discipleship as like shaping our hearts and our desires and our instincts. That makes sense. Jonathan Haidt, who's a sociologist, he tells us that actually most decisions where we think we're making, we're being rational about what we're thinking, he's like, it all really comes, it starts with our instincts and our desires, and then we come up with these quote-unquote rational ways to justify what it is that we actually want. And so I see part of spirituality as shaping desire, right? God be in my heart and in my thinking, and then theologies can flow from there. All right, I know that one was a little bit dense for August, but I was hopeful that that would be a little bit helpful for us um, in our service. Usually we have a minute or two of silence or guided meditation, but we are going to just listen to David's song, which he had recorded by some of his friends at EMU in the music department. I invite you to just take a deep breath and enjoy it and pray it along. don't even want to move into the time of corporate prayer. It's so moving. Spirit, we thank you for who you are. 
We thank you for helping us to teach, uh, to think with our hearts. We ask that you would give us wisdom, that you would help us to um, both tolerate and embody the messiness that comes with not always having dogma, not always having to have our systematic theologies. I ask that you would help us to love first and that we'd be able to have our theologies of justice and inclusion and things that would actually be helpful in repairing this world flow from that place. Be with your church in this new reformation. Let the things that need to die, die. And let the things that need to resurrect, resurrect. Amen.